Welcome to another episode of the Tech.eu podcast. I'm Roxanne Varza, and I'm here with Tech.eu editor Robin Waters. Hi, Robin. Hey, Roxanne. Thank you so much for not firing me from the podcast just yet. (laughs) No problem. So this week, we have a lot of great topics lined up. We will discuss three big European acquisitions that may or may not have happened. We'll talk about a U.S. payments company, Square, that has started making its way over to Europe. We'll discuss Slovakia's ecosystem, which is trying to make a name for itself. Robin, you had a chance to catch up with Belgian startup Showpad, so we'll have a listen to that. And finally, we'll wrap up with whether or not the rumors of a decline in European VC funding are true. Hopefully they're not true, but we will have to wait till the end to hear about that. So let's jump right in with a few recent acquisitions, two that did happen and one that didn't. So the first one that did happen is Japanese SoftBank, which agreed to acquire British semiconductor firm ARM for 29 billion euros. That's 29 billion. So I feel like I should just let that number sink in for the listeners. It's probably already clear that this is essentially the largest acquisition of a European tech business. The Cambridge-based company that designs smartphone chips licenses its technology to Apple and Samsung, so it's really a very key player in the mobile space. ARM apparently shipped 15 billion chips last year, and that's up from 3 billion the year before. So this is obviously by no means a startup. Uh, was founded 25 years ago, currently employs 4,000 people. SoftBank is clearly hoping this acquisition will strengthen its play in the IoT space. And rumor has it that actually there was only like two weeks of negotiation. And Masayoshi Sun, who's the chairman of SoftBank, said he was making a huge bet on the UK post-Brexit. And actually, I think Brexit probably played a very key role in prompting this acquisition, given that the pound was obviously a lot weaker, probably made the UK company even more attractive for a purchase. Yes, correct. Well, the thing is that both parties are saying that Brexit didn't play a role at all in the discussions, which I find a little odd because, I mean, how can you argue that the lower price, considering the the price of the yen versus the sterling by the time the deal happened, didn't play a role in this? That would make them very bad strategists, which is, you know, it's safe to say that that SoftBank isn't a bad strategist. I mean, they, they carefully considered this deal probably long, long before they actually entered negotiations. But I think, you know, the, the Brexit and the fact that the pound declined in value so much after that, you know, it must have helped. It must have played a role, even if they downplay it. But yeah, so massive acquisition. Um, I think... Um, I would suggest that people read up on ARM. Um, Charles Arthur was previously with The Guardian, wrote a really, really good piece on ARM, which I, you know, I'll, I'll link to in the, in the post uh, announcing the podcast. But it's a really good read. Um, it's one of the crown jewels of the UK tech ecosystem. So it's a massive acquisition that will have, you know, lots of implications for the local ecosystem for years to come. Massive deal. Yeah, huge, huge historical deal. Actually, we have another big UK acquisition that took place this past week, which was MasterCard buying Vocalink for just under a billion dollars. So that was $920 million to be exact. So that's actually big money going to the UK for two deals. So maybe Brexit 
is actually playing a role in all of this. MasterCard actually acquired 92.4% of the London-based business that operates key payments technology platforms on behalf of UK payment schemes. So that's like Link, which is the UK's cash machines network. Apparently, the company processes 90% of salaries, 70% of household bills, and just about all of the state benefits in the UK. So it's a very, very core player in the payment space. This acquisition clearly gives MasterCard a very strategic role in the UK payments ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. Big numbers. And Pokerlink also uh, said last year it processed about 11 billion transactions overall. Uh, yeah, revenues of about 182 million pounds. So it's a massive player. Um, it's an established player as well. It's not a startup. This was a fintech company long before the term fintech was even a thing. So they're super established. You know, they're at the core of the UK payments infrastructure, really. So it's worth noting that MasterCard had discussions with Focalink uh, reportedly for many, many months before the vote on Brexit. So it's a this conversely might not have played a role in this one, although it might might have sped up things a little bit. So it's interesting to note that in February of this year, the UK payments regulator, the PSR, um, actually ordered Vocalink to be broken up. Uh, so it's a bit of a surprise that Mastercard was able to buy you know so much of the company at all. So it's a it's a little surprising to see it happen, but it's obviously very very key for Mastercard to have an established player like that in the UK. But I also think it will help them, you know, Focalink internationalize. So, so they're already uh, working with payment uh, schemes in other countries outside of the UK. And I think, you know, this move will only accelerate their expansion plans. Yeah, definitely. So that's two deals that did go through. And now for a deal that did not go through. We reported on a previous podcast that Norway's Opera software was to be acquired by a Chinese consortium of internet firms for $1.2 billion. Apparently, this deal did not go through by the July 15th deadline. So this has resulted in a smaller deal, maybe a more interesting deal. The Chinese companies are apparently purchasing only parts of Opera's consumer business for $600 million. Yeah, so you can sort of say this deal only went half through. So uh, another Asian company uh, that wanted to buy a European tech player, an established one, that ended up not happening, or not happening um, all the way at least. But I think what most people know uh, Opera for is the consumer business, and that's what you know this this group of internet firms is acquiring, or at least has agreed to acquire for six hundred million dollars, which on itself is really still you know a rather sizable deal. But it remains to be seen what Opera will become after uh, the transaction closes. I mean, they won't be a browser software maker anymore. Um, they'll be completely mobile advertising focused, and 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 you know so some other products that they that they're currently working on, but it will no longer be the Opera software that we you know, know and love. So it will be a completely different company either way. I think if you read up on the deal, uh, the actual reason that the $1.2 billion acquisition didn't happen for 100% of the company is because of um, you know, the lack of regulatory approval, um, which you know didn't happen before the deadline. So we'll see what happens next. Um, my guess is that the deal will go through now uh, for the consumer uh, part of the business. But what I'm really interested in seeing is how Opera kind of develops as a company after that. Um, so that remains to be seen. Yeah, I think a super interesting deal. There's not a lot of deals that kind of take a turn like this. So uh, definitely worth noting. 
So now U.S. payments company Square, which I doubt needs any intro on the podcast, is making its way across the Atlantic and preparing to launch in the U.K. Square, which was founded back in 2009, has apparently started quietly allowing users to make payments using Square Register, which is a point-of-sales app, in the U.K. and in British pounds. So Square already has an existing footprint outside the U.S. It's available in Canada, Australia, Japan. But this is clearly Square moving in on European turf, where it will compete with the likes of iZettle, PayPal, SumUp. There are actually rumors that Square may also be interested in moving into Europe by means of acquisition of a company like iZettle. I don't know if there's any specific rumors around iZettle per se, but that's definitely a strategy they've they've been rumored to be looking into. For the moment, Square is not selling its hardware in the UK. In Europe, it's also likely that they will adapt the hardware to the more secure chip and pin method rather than the swipe solution that they use in the US, for example. Yeah, so it's an interesting move. I remember when I was still working at TechCrunch back in 2009 when Square launched, I think already then uh, people were kind of arguing, you know, they'll launch in in the UK and, and, and Europe probably rather quickly. You know, seven years down the line, still hasn't happened. Um, but it seems to be finally happening. You know, it's still rumors at this stage. I mean, they've, they've opened up for Sterling, which is a really telltale sign. But they haven't really announced anything yet uh, officially. So so we're still waiting for confirmation. And I'm, I'm guessing if they actually launch in the UK, they'll probably do it with a splash. Because, you know, it's the first European market that they enter. So, so we'll hear about it. But it might take another few months of uh, them testing and kind of testing the waters and then trying out a few things before they actually formally launch. But yeah, they kind of have to. I mean, it's a, it's a massive market. The UK alone has about 5.5 million SMEs, um, which is you know the target audience for the likes of uh, Square and iZettle. Um, it's an English-speaking nation, of course. It's a strong economy. They have a very, very solid fintech culture. So it really makes sense for Square to, to launch their next. Um, they've already expanded to Canada and Australia, as you correctly mentioned, but also in Japan. So it's kind of a mystery why they waited so long to come to Europe. The chip and pin versus swipe has a lot to do with that. But on the other hand, they already switched to kind of an EMV solution about two years ago. So it's, a, it's rather odd that they they waiting so long to launch in Europe. Um, but it's good to see that they finally are. The rumors of the acquisition of iZettle were actually reported by, I think, TechCrunch. I don't know if there's there's any truth in it. This is the first time I've ever heard of it. I don't think it would make a lot of sense, to be honest, for Square to buy iZettle at this point. If they wanted to move into Europe and kind of buy an established player, I think they would have done it a few years ago. Jack Dorsey doesn't have a reputation for buying companies for market share or organic growth uh, rather than, you know, for technological reasons or, you know, to bring in talent like small teams. Um, so I don't think this will happen. I think rather Square will launch and try to duke it out with iZettle and sum up locally. But we'll see. Interesting. I guess we have to watch an iZettle Square battle potentially, uh, which could be kind of exciting. But now there couldn't be a better time for us to discuss Slovakia's ecosystem than the week after Melania Trump's speech kind of mishap in the U.S. We actually discussed Slovakia's ecosystem on the podcast not too long ago with regards to Hyperloop's plans to set up there. Um, And it seems actually the Hyperloop kind of attention is adding a lot of momentum to Slovakia's ecosystem, which I have to admit I don't know particularly well. But according to some, there's kind of a reverse brain drain that's starting to take hold. Many who left to pursue jobs in Western Europe are now returning home with foreign experience that they can put to use. Um, We've also mentioned previously 
Aero Mobile, which is the kind of famous flying car project that's pretty much as ambitious as the self-driving car. And Aero Mobile is still working on prototypes, but the car could actually go on sale as early as 2018. So another kind of really incredible Slovakia-based project. And like many of the younger ecosystems in Europe, I guess Slovakia's ecosystem is perhaps still lacking in terms of investors. One of the region's kind of VC funds, Nulogy, has funded about 30 projects. They have 26 million under management. So that can kind of give you an idea of what a fund may look like in the region, although probably a very rare fund. And actually, it seems that there may also be an advantage to investing in some of the younger ecosystems where valuations are still lower than where they are elsewhere in Europe. Have you ever been to Slovakia? I haven't. I've been to neighboring countries. <laughs> well, I need to go. <laughs> it's exactly the same for me. I've never been to Slovakia. But it's interesting to note, like this, this is such a small country, such a young ecosystem. But when you talk about them, you talk about Hyperloop potentially launching there, and you talk about flying cars being invented there. Um, so that, that's really, really interesting to watch. But I mean, you know, on the, on the surface, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Slovakia. You have a, the new president or the latest president for the first time, you know, an ex-entrepreneur, electrical engineer. So that's that's brought some momentum to the decisions that are being made around startups and innovation in the country. There are a number of startups. I, I can only name a few, like Factory and a few other ones, uh, but I don't really know that much about startups in Slovakia. Um, I went to the website for startupslovakia.com, which is actually supposed to be the organization that kind of promotes the local ecosystem. And there was no mention of any startups on the site. So, and uh, their Facebook presence apparently has also been wiped out. So that, that was a little bit unfortunate. I was hoping to learn more about them, you know, uh, Slovakian startups, but I haven't been able to. But it seems to me that there's a, a bit of a vibrant community being formed. It's still rather small, but you can see like bar camps being organized, startup weekends, startup grind. Um, there's a local startup awards competition that I've been hearing about for a few years now. So it seems that things are really moving there. Um, in, in terms of investors, of course, they're lacking, but it's also always a case of, you know, do, we, do you need a lot of investors if there aren't a lot of startups yet? So I think you need, you know, a solid base of startups before you can start talking about a lack of investors, to be fair. But yeah, interesting markets. Um, it's capital Bratislava. It's only an hour drive away from, from major cities like Vienna, Budapest, um, no, um, in the Czech Republic. So it's strategically located very well. Um, so, so that might help it develop into a more uh, mature ecosystem down the line. We'll see. Yeah, we've actually mentioned before that it's part of the triangle, I guess, of Bratislava, Vienna, and Prague, which I didn't even know that made up like a tech triangle. <laughs> that was really interesting for me. But I think this ecosystem, I, like you said, when we talk about flying cars and Hyperloop, I think it's definitely one to watch. So Roxanne, well, when are we going to Slovakia? We need to make plans. We need to make plans. Let's put this as like an announcement. If there is a huge event that we need to attend in Slovakia, please reach out to us and tell us. We will yes, come. Give us an excuse and we'll come over. <laughs> we need an excuse. So now, Robin, you had a chance to catch up with Belgian startup Showpad. Hey, this is Robin from TechU. I'm here with Peter Jan from Showpad, one a Belgian scale-up, finally. And for full disclosure, I was kind of, kind of a little bit, tiny bit involved in the beginning of the, what, 2011? Yeah, 2011. So <laughs> very early on. Yeah, very early on. But really interesting company even back then, and now one of the fastest scaling companies ever seen in Belgium. But maybe first and foremost, what is Showpad? What do you do? 
Showpad, we're a content activation platform uh, for sales and marketing teams. So we make sure that you know all the content that marketing creates, that you know sales reps can easily find it, use it, share it, and we give a lot of data back both to the marketing teams and sales, so they can optimize content and sales, so they can be more productive and follow up better with customers. Give us some numbers. Uh, how big is the team? Uh, what kind of revenue you're seeing? Where's the most active market for you in terms of customers? So we founded the company 2011. Uh, we're now 170 employees spread across, across different offices. We have a big engineering office here in Ghent, Belgium, about 90 people with also some sales and, and customer success. We have a big team in the US, about 60 people, uh, mainly in San Francisco, but we recently opened a Portland office. And then also in London, we're uh, 15. We've grown yeah, over 100% year on year the last four years in terms of ARR. We crossed about 12 million uh, annual recurring revenue uh, a couple of weeks back. So it's getting nice. pretty fast. We tried to double this year. Um, we have about 850 customers in about 54 countries. And it's both enterprise, I would say, I would say our, our sweet spot is uh, mid-market, but we also have some you know, big enterprise customers like BASF, uh, for example, right. or Heineken. We also have a small SMB site. Right now. Nice. Cool. Uh, you also had some, some recent big news to announce, big financing round from, from US investors. Yep. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so we closed our Series C a couple of weeks back with uh, Inside Venture Partners. Uh, yeah, very well-known VC on the, on the East Coast. They backed companies like uh, Twitter, Alibaba, and I would say more in, in the SaaS enterprise space, Gainsight, Zenefit, uh, campaign monitor uh, right. or, or companies that they so they're back. well acquainted with this like SaaS vertical. Uh, yeah, they they, did, they deployed a couple of billion already in in uh, oh, wow. SaaS companies. Impressive. So, uh, did you specifically seek out the investor, or did you have conversations with dozens? We had a lot of conversations. So Series A we raised in Belgium from Hummingbird Ventures. Series B was Don Capital in London and Hummingbird Ventures. That was 2014. And then as we're scaling so fast in the US, we really wanted a US investors. Uh, so we had quite some inbound, to put it in marketing terms, uh, over the last uh, year from investors who approached us. Insight has been tracking us for a, n a couple of years, actually. And uh, Q4 2015, we had a lot of conversations with investors. And then uh, in the first quarter of 2016, started advancing uh, conversations. And Insights was at the top of our list. And uh, yeah, very happy to have them on board there. We have the founder of the fund, uh, Jeff Herring uh, himself. Who is who, who joined our board? And I mean, he's a he's an amazing guy. Well done. Well, for both sides, well done. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that the U.S. team is still smaller than the one in Ghent for now. Do you see that yeah. changing over time? Yeah, in the U.S., we're very much focused on, of course, scaling sales and marketing uh, organization there. And and but in Ghent, we simultaneously scale the engineering. So probably it's it's going to remain kind of fifty fifty, but we're going to grow very aggressively in, right. in both locations. Do you still consider yourself a Belgian company, or is it like no longer relevant for you? Uh, I, I I would say. We say dual headquarter now, right. Ghent and San Francisco. Especially if you're dealing with U.S. companies, I mean, they they like to you know they sure. like to have the feeling that you're, they're talking to a U.S. company. Right. Uh, but the, I would say the soul of the company is definitely Belgium. <laughs> Good, and, uh, Belgium pride. Yes. Um, so uh, you mentioned that you move, you're moving away from Silicon Valley to Portland. Is yeah. that because of the obvious expensive um, cost, the overhead, the engineers, the developers? Is that the reason? Yeah, that's that's definitely the main reason. It's very hard, you know, to really you know it. San Francisco is a great place in terms of talent and, and, and to meet super interesting people. Obviously, you have a very tight-knit community there from investors, 
proven operators, uh, advisors, people who can help you. But the moment you start really scaling um, your business, it becomes very expensive. And also, people have a tendency to not stay long, you know, that you know, not stay very long at your company. And there's not that much loyalty, you know, especially when you're hiring salespeople and they have another opportunity and they go somewhere else. So, definitely from a cost perspective, but also, you know, important, great pool of talent, great city. You know, one hour from San Francisco. Yeah, we looked at several options, you know, in other cities as well around San Francisco, you know, Boulder or, you know, there's other places as well. You know, eventually, by coincidence, we, we ended up at Portland. Portland. But, Got it. uh, it's a um, great place. So you just raised 50 million rounds. When you raise a round of that size, that obviously puts a lot of pressure on mm -hmm. the company. I mean, it, it kind of ups the stakes in a way yeah. that the next round is going to be even Hire or IPO or exit or what do you think yeah. is going to happen? What's most likely to happen? In the next I mean, uh, why did Inside you know invest in Showpad? I mean, and also our current in fact, investors actually participate in the round. It's because you know, they believe in our in our vision to activate the world's business content and that we're solving a very big problem. They have seen the metrics over the last four years being consistently very good in terms of growth, in terms of cost of acquisition, in terms of like lifetime value, things like that. Things you know are very solid. And yes, I mean, we're, we're on a trajectory of growth. Does it put pressure? I would say it just will, you know, you become an entrepreneur to constantly challenge yourself, raise the bar. And Louis and myself, you know, we had options to maybe, you know, sell the company earlier right. or, you know, take maybe the easy way. But look, we want to do something big, uh, go for it. And to do that in the best possible way, you like to have good people around you who can help you. And awesome. Good, then, an good answer. <laughs> and then it's about, yeah. Picking the best investor, and, right. and you know, and the money is just—it's not the end goal, right? Raising the sure. money—it's it's the, it's the means to an end, and sure. the end is to do something very big. Right. Just to conclude, uh, what, what's the biggest challenge you have as the, if you're growing that fast yeah. in terms of headcount and revenue, and you know, um, media attention and investor attention? So, what, what's yeah. the biggest challenge that you have right now? So yeah, for, for me personally, it's yeah, keep you know, keep your focus and like don't get distracted. I really try to keep my focus on what's important. As a company, I think it's actually the same. It's like you, you don't want to become like this cash burning machine. Uh, you want to be efficient. You want to you know make sure that the, the fundamentals are right and that your your metrics and you know the way that you run your business is solid. If you grow that fast, I mean you got you have you know things that go wrong. You know you make mistakes. But you still need to be, you know, lean and mean enough to course correct very fast and not get lazy and fat, you know. But you know, be be lean and mean and grow very fast. Awesome. Well, on that note, thank you very much for your time and best of luck with Chopa. Yeah. Thanks, Robin. Have a great day. And finally, for the last few weeks, essentially ever since Brexit, there have been rumors of a decrease in VC funding for European startups. So I've seen articles on Business Insider and more recently on CNBC. Seems this is a real topic. In fact, CNBC reported that while European VCs raised record funding in the first half of 2016, European VC plunged 27% due to Brexit worries. So Tech.eu just released its tech funding report for Q2 of 2016. And while Q2 was definitely a down quarter on the surface, it was actually a stronger quarter underneath. European, Israeli, and Turkish startups raised 4.1 billion euros across 782 deals in Q2 alone. That's huge. And in terms of number of deals, France remains in first position for, I think it's like the second or the third quarter in a row, which is obviously incredible to me, but also funny because BPI France, which is France's public investment vehicle, also remains the most active investor. 
uh, more active than any venture fund with 21 deals done in that time. In terms of the amount of funding, Israel has bypassed the UK. So while the UK clearly experienced a decline, um, markets like Israel and Germany actually balanced things out. So listeners who are interested in getting kind of the full details can also purchase the full report on tech.eu for £99. Yes, you definitely can and should buy the full report. But just uh, sort of the, as the main takeaways, um, I've read the same reports that you have uh, about this decline in venture capital in Europe. They're total bullshit. And, and I hope I can use that word. It's our own podcast, so I can use that word. It's total, <laughs> total, total, total bullshit. Um, everyone is kind of expecting funding to decline in Europe um, ever since it started declining in the US, which has been going on for the last three quarters. But it hasn't really happened. The data simply doesn't reflect it. We keep track of, of pretty much any funding round that goes on across Europe. And this is not just the EU, right? It's, a, it's also a place like Russia and Turkey and the Balkans and Israel. So we keep track of all of these data uh, very meticulously, and we simply don't see a decline. There has been a decline when you look at the numbers in the first quarter compared to the second quarter. There has been a slight decline, both in number of deals and investment volume. But the second quarter of this year still came in higher than any quarter in 2015. And by the way, the first quarter of this year was a record-breaking one. You know, if you're expecting record-breaking quarters every single time, then yes, you can say that it's been a disappointing quarter. If you look at the data for 2015 and you compare it against, you know, the second quarter of this year, it actually has been a very, very, very solid quarter again. So I don't know where all of these reports about this, you know, this, this plunge or this, this massive disc decline in venture capital are coming from. I mean, it might still happen. We might see a decline in, in VC going to startups in Europe over the next few quarters. Who knows? Uh, but for now, we're not seeing it. The data simply doesn't, doesn't show that. So I think it's interesting that there are this, you know, kind of conflicting reports going on. But I should suggest anyone to kind of like, you know, look at our data and see if we are making any mistakes, if there are any holes in there. I would argue that TechEU at this point has become, you know, the single best resource for, for this kind of stuff um, when it comes to Europe. Anyone can challenge our data, but then they have to show kind of the underlying data set and then we can prove them wrong. I'm being a little bit defensive here, <laughs> but it's really something that we're very data driven. So this isn't just opinion. The data shows that there hasn't been a decline in VC at all in Europe for the last few quarters. Yeah, I have to say that um, Neil and I have mentioned previously that there were other articles in the past that also kind of bashed you know, the number of unicorns that there were in Europe saying that we don't know how to count them properly. And now it's Europe, you know, the, the VC situation is not exactly what it's made out to be. And it's just funny because like in Europe, we would never do that about another ecosystem. So I find it kind of hilarious that, you know, <laughs> that, that would come from the US essentially hoping or maybe wishing that our ecosystem would have that similar experience to what's happening over there. But really glad, Robin, that you set the record straight. And I'm even more glad that you used the word bullshit on the podcast. I think that's excellent. Was it the first time? I think that was the first time. I think uh, Neil and I actually had a what the fuck uh, moment right, before, right, but we never it. said bullshit. So now this, this discussion piece at the end of the podcast is kind of where we just let loose and just really uh, take it all out on whatever our thoughts are. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you, Roxanne, for um, letting me be the co-host uh, for the third time. Um, thank you, all our listeners, for tuning in. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, uh, as you probably know by now. You should do it if you haven't already. Um, you can follow Roxanne on Twitter. It's at Roxanne Barza. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Robin Waters. Or you can follow the TechEU account. It's like underscore EU. Subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. And hope you listen again next week. Thank you. Thanks, Robin.